Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're not silent, but you speak to your people. Give us ears to hear what you want to say. Soften our hearts to receive it. And by your Holy Spirit, give us the will to respond in obedience. For Christ's sake and his glory, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I wonder uh, what you gave thanks to God for this week. I hope you had time to do that, um, either individually or or with a group uh, this week, to give thanks to God for his many blessings. And what we uh, what we often do, and, and rightly so, is give thanks to God for the current blessings that we experience in this life, the things that we are presently experiencing. Um, we give God thanks for the gift of life. Life itself is a gift from God. Uh, we give God thanks for our health. We are all healthy enough to be here in this place, and it's right to give Him thanks for that. Uh, we might thank God for our family and our friends and the sustenance that He gives us. And we, we thank God not only for current blessings, but we thank God for past blessings. Uh, some of us give thanks to God for uh, the heritage of faith that we were raised in and the parents who raised us in, in the faith. We might thank God for looking back on our lives, the opportunities He's given us, education and training and those sorts of things. Uh, and certainly we ought to thank God. We ought to look back on our life and see how God has revealed Himself to us and thank God for uh, the way He reveals Himself to us in, in His Word and, and through His people and through the church and through the circumstances of our lives. So uh, we thank God for current blessings. We thank God for past blessings, but many of the blessings that God has in store for His people and, and kind of the, the, the crowning touch of blessing that God has for His people lies in the future. We, we are people of the promise. God has promised things to His, uh, to his people about the future. And, and that's important for us to remember because our, our life as Christians is like a pilgrimage. And yes, while there are blessings along the way, and we give thanks to God for those blessings, there are, as we all know, there are setbacks. There are disappointments. There is pain in this journey. And so we are people of the promise, and as we think about what God has promised to us about the future, that gives us strength and hope. And so I want us to think about today on this Christ the King Sunday, today the theme of the the service is that Christ is the King that God has sent into this world, but He is going to come again. We, leave, we live between two advents, two comings of Christ, His first coming, and we look forward to the second coming. And I want to point out that so many of the promises that Christ, that God gives us about the future are bound up with the coming of this King, King Jesus at his second coming. And so, I want us just to go through and look at these readings. I want to uh, make comments on each reading this morning. What has God promised people about the future and how that is connected to Christ the King? So, in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel writing about 600 years before the coming of Christ, during a time of exile, the people 
in Israel are in one of those periods of disappointment and heartache and suffering. But in Ezekiel 34, verse 15, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, promises a day is coming when he's going to be with his people and he's going to care for them directly like a shepherd cares for his sheep. Ezekiel 34, 15, I myself, God is saying, will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself, I'm going to be there. And they're going, I, I know them and they're going to know my presence with them in a direct way and I'm going to take care of them. Now, the reason God is saying this is because the shepherds of Israel have failed the people of Israel. And that's why they're in exile. And so Ezekiel 34 starts with the critique of the shepherds of Israel, the priests and the kings. They failed the people of God. And, and uh, God says through the, prophet, uh, 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 through the prophet Ezekiel that the shepherds of Israel did not care for God's sheep. They did not feed the hungry sheep. They did not take care of the wounded sheep. They did not look for the lost sheep those who were strained. Instead, these shepherds used their position for their own advantage. He says, Ezekiel 34, 8, it's not in the bulletin, but he says, the shepherds feed themselves, but they do not feed my sheep. So there's a criticism here that God is making about his, uh, about leaders over his people who are taking advantage of his people. And he's saying, the day is coming where I'm going to do away with that and I will directly care for, uh, for my people. We see this today, don't we, in, in the church. Um, there, has, there have been stories that have come out recently about abuse and misuse of power and authority. And it's led to church hurt. It's led to some people even leaving the church because of the way the leadership has failed. And, and, and so there's, God is concerned about his sheep and there's this critique here. God holds his leaders accountable. And even the best leaders, even those who by the grace of God want to do right by the sheep, they, they, they want to serve the sheep and not take advantage of their position. Even the best of them are flawed sinners and fall short. You know the, the saying, uh, the best of men are men at best. The best of women are women at best. And so there's going to be disappointment uh, with, with human leaders. But God promises a day when he himself will guide his people. And they will know him in, a, in this direct and intimate way. And that's been partially fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in the coming of Christ at his first advent. Remember the words of John 10. Remember what Jesus says, I am the what? The good what? The good shepherd. He's showing up and saying, I am fulfilling this promise of Ezekiel 34. I am the good shepherd. How do you know that Christ is good? How do you know that Christ cares for his people? How do you know Christ cares for you? I lay down my, uh, my life for my sheep. <clears throat> I am the good shepherd who lays down his life 
for his sheep. So at the cross, Jesus demonstrates how much he cares for us with his sacrificial act. You had the, the shepherds who were corrupt, who were acting selfishly, and then you have the good shepherd who gives his life as a sacrifice, who gives himself without reference to himself, out of love for his people. So Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he says in John 10, my sheep know my voice. This is how uh, Christ, the good shepherd, the, the shepherd king guides his church. Even today, Christ is with us in his word. My sheep know my voice. Even today, Christ is revealing his love to his sheep. Every Sunday, we come to the table and we're reminded of his sacrificial love in the bread and the wine. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. Even today, Jesus is with us. He is the good shepherd demonstrating his love and guiding you with his voice. But there's coming a day when he'll be even in more direct contact with us. The final fulfillment of this promise that there's coming a day when God will be with his people and will guide them like a shepherd and will care for them like a shepherd. The final fulfillment is in heaven. Revelation 7 looks forward to this. Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne, listen to this, the lamb who has been slain for his people. Listen to this juxtaposition of images here. The lamb which is in the midst of the throne in the presence of God shall be their shepherd. The lamb who was slain becomes the shepherd for those for whom he died in the presence of God in heaven. And he shall guide them unto fountains of waters of life. He will do this work finally of guiding them to these waters of eternal life in the presence of the eternal God. And then he goes on and says, and God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so again, in this journey of faith, there's pain, there's setbacks, there's disappointment, there's tears. There's a sense sometimes that we're distanced Distant from Christ, our good shepherd, even though he does come to us with his word and in the sacraments. But there's coming a day when we're going to know the presence of God directly. That will be in the presence of our shepherd directly. A day when there will not be any more tears. He will wipe every tear from our eye. And so that comes through the work of Christ the King. So here's another promise that God makes to us about the future. There's this, this future of being in the presence of, of, of God and of the Good Shepherd. But then there's this other promise that God makes to us about the future, and that's in 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ the King will destroy death. Christ the King will destroy death once and for all. Paul says, when the end comes... Christ will deliver the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ will put death 
to death. He will destroy it. Now, he's already proven his power over death. He already has proven in the resurrection that he is the victor over death. Paul writes that Christ has been raised from the dead. The reason we can trust that Christ is victorious and has the power over death is this, that he has already been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have died or the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is using a harvest image appropriate for this time of year, for Thanksgiving time. And um, the, the, the harvest, in a sense, the first fruits have already come. But that means there's more coming. You know, the first uh, Thanksgiving here in America was celebrated in 1621, and it was a celebration of a successful harvest. And when the, the, the pilgrims and the Indians saw those pumpkins beginning to pop out of the ground and the corn and all the rest that they had planted, they finally were able to celebrate a successful harvest. That meant that that was going to sustain them through the harsh winter to come. And that gave them hope. Just seeing the first fruits emerge gave them the hope of a greater harvest. And that's how it is with the resurrection. When you see the first fruit, you know that more is on the way. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead. And this is why we have resurrection hope, friends. When, when we see our loved ones die, we have resurrection hope for them. We have resurrection hope for ourselves because Christ has been raised from the dead. And so Paul encourages us here. When Christ comes at the end, he who has already proven his power over this great enemy is going to vanquish it once and for all. The last enemy to be destroyed is Death. Now, I want to pause here because I want us to understand the Christian perspective about death for a moment, just to take a moment and talk about this idea of death as an enemy. Because sometimes you'll hear people say in an effort to kind of lessen the psychological blow of death and the tragedy of it all and the awfulness of it, uh, you'll hear people say, well, death is is it's just. It's just natural. It's just part of life. It's just part of the cycle of life. And so let's just accept it as just part of life. And that's true from a strictly biological point of view. But the Christian view is is more than that. The Christian view is, is exactly what Paul is saying here. Death is an enemy. Death is a, uh, a an enemy intruder. And we see that in the first pages of the Bible in Genesis, in the story of Adam and Eve. Death does not belong there. Adam and Eve are made for fellowship with God. Death comes into God's good creation when Adam and Eve turn from God, who is the source of life, to the lies of the serpent who wants to create death and destroy God's good creation. And so death comes into the world as a result of sin. And and so it's a great enemy. The wages of sin, Paul says in Romans, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so death is a great enemy. And you don't need to convince somebody who has watched somebody suffer and then die, a loved one, that, that death is a terrible, awful enemy. Well, what is our hope in the face of this enemy? Thanks be to God that we have a resurrected king. 
who has already, he's already put his boot on the neck of this great enemy. He's already defeated it. And then when he comes again, he will vanquish it once and for all. And Jesus promises this, friends. Jesus, our good shepherd, Jesus, our shepherd king, promises this over and over again to his people, to his sheep. Will you trust in the promises that Christ makes about the future? He says in John 5.25, Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, amen, I say to you, what I'm saying to you is true. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Trust the promise of Christ. Hear His voice today. Hear what His apostles say. Remember this. Remember this promise. Death will be defeated. Remember this in your illness. Remember this in your sickbed. Remember this in your hospital. Remember this at the funeral home. This is a defeated enemy. Yes, it's an awful, terrible enemy. We should grieve, but not as those who don't have hope because of Christ, our King. So he gives us hope against this great enemy, hope for the future. And finally, I want us to see that Christ promises a final judgment. Christ the King promises a final judgment on the last day. Now, this passage is both encouraging, it contains an encouraging promise, and it, and it contains sober warnings. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, Jesus teaches us that he's going to come at the end of time as the king and judge of the world. He's going to judge every person from every nation. And this judgment is going to lead to a separation, the sheep from the goats. So a great day is coming, a final day, and it's going to be a crisis. It's going to be a day of judgment, of divine justice, and it's going to lead to separation, the sheep from the goats. Every person will be judged by Christ. And so here's the critical question. What's going to be the basis of the judgment? And Jesus tells us what the basis of the judgment will be. Whatever you have done unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. Now, what does that mean? Whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. There's different views of how to interpret this. This is, this is my best effort here. This is how I think about it. All throughout Matthew, Jesus uses the term brothers to refer to his disciples. You can look this up, Matthew 12, 49. When Jesus points to his disciples, he says, these are my brothers. Or, or Matthew 28, 10, the resurrected Christ tells Mary, go to my brothers in Galilee and tell them what you've seen. So he uses the term brothers to refer to his disciples. And the idea here is that how people treat his disciples indicates their attitude towards him. How people treat Christ or his disciples indicates how they, they, they think about him. The disciples represent him. They are Christ's representatives. It's not just brothers. It's not just disciples, is it? But it's the least of these 
my brothers, the ones that are hurting the most, the ones that are hungry, the ones that are sick, the ones that are in prison, the ones that need extra care. And so that's the criteria. Whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Christ is so connected to his people. I don't think we understand, and maybe we won't ever understand until this side of heaven, how connected Christ is to his people. Remember what he said to Paul, who was persecuting the church? Saul, Saul, why have you persecuted me? There's such a close connection between Christ and his people. Now, we have to be careful here. It's not as if the sheep, the the true followers of Christ, do these things in order to get into heaven. It's not as if they they serve the least of these in order to get into heaven because they said they don't even know what they're really doing other than loving Christ's people. They said, when did we serve you? When when did we feed you? When did we visit you? When, when, When did we give you something to drink? When did that happen? They didn't know that in doing these things, in caring for his disciples and the least of his disciples, that they were caring for Christ. But that's what that, that's what a love for cry, a love for Christ's people demonstrates. It demonstrates a love for Christ. It demonstrates that you belong to the family of God. And we see this in our own life, don't we? In our own family. I mean, if somebody shows up, that's part of my family. And even if I haven't seen them for a while, if a distant cousin or nephew shows up on my doorstep and I know that they're part of my family and they say, Hey, Ben, I need help. Here's what here's what's happening in my life. Well, because they're part of my family, I'm going to do what I can to help them. And you would do the same thing because we are family. We have these these bonds. We have these ties. And our love for the family of God demonstrates that we belong to his family. Jesus teaches this. The apostles teach this. First John 314. Listen to this. The Apostle John, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. We know that we've passed from death to life because of our love for Christ's people. So it's not that we're saved by good works like the things that are mentioned in Matthew 25. But these good works show their evidence that we are saved. Uh, Salvation is owned By faith in Christ. But salvation is shown by our good works for Christ. It shows a heart that's been changed. It shows where our love really is. And so Christ here gives a test of faith. He gives us a test of true faith, doesn't he? Do you, do do I love the people of Christ? Do I care especially for the least of his people? Am I concerned about his people? Do I find a connection with his people and a compassion for his people? Yes, we're to be compassionate and care for all people, but especially the household of God. This is a test that Christ gives us. And if we have no if we if we don't have any love for the people of God, Christ's sheep, then we have reason to be concerned. We have reason to pray to God to give us this love, to put this love for him and his people in our hearts. But the point I want to make here is that a day is coming when Christ the King will bring perfect justice. And that is encouraging. That is encouraging because we see the horror of injustice in our world today. 
Now, there's a warning here, isn't there? That those who persist in turning from Christ will find themselves without God in eternity. This is the sober warning. And it's been said that sin is is man saying no to God. Leave me alone. I want to live life on my own terms. Leave me alone. And hell is God saying to people who resist, you may have your wish. You may go into eternity apart from me. Christ is giving this teaching, however, as a warning so that people won't. So that they won't turn away from God, but instead turn to him in repentance and faith. The encouraging promise here is that those who belong to Christ will hear him say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That's the encouraging promise here. Friends, we've witnessed the horror of injustice in our world, and we see it so often, don't we? And and the way that even the concept of justice can be perverted and twisted in the service of evil. I mean, we all want justice, but what do we mean by it? And, and so because of our sin and our twisted hearts, we can use a concept like justice, which is good, and we can twist it and pervert it into justifying evil. Like what happened when Hamas attacked Israel on November the 7th. And maybe you've heard about one of those Hamas soldiers who contacted, called his father and was celebrating the fact that he had killed ten Jews with his own hands. He said, Father, I murdered ten Jews with my own hands. He was celebrating this. And why? Because the concept of justice there had gotten twisted and perverted so that an act like that and acts like killing children were seen as good. So we know that because of our human sin and frailty, this idea of justice can be perverted and twisted. But on that day, it's going to be perfect justice. And those kinds of things will will come to an end. On that day, God's justice will be revealed and no one will get away with anything. Jesus promises that this will not last forever when he comes as the king, the judge, the living and the dead. And so we live in this hope. We live in this hope. We live in the hope of these future blessings. In C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I read recently to Sam, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. But, you know, there's an evil queen who's taken over Narnia, and Narnia's frozen. It's always winter, but never Christmas, now that the evil queen has taken over. But as Aslan, the true king of Narnia, begins to approach, things begin to change. Just as he's approaching... Things begin to change. The the frozen streams begin to thaw out and the water begins to flow and bubble. And, And Lewis says that the trees shake off their robes of white beginning to thaw out, revealing dark green and brown branches. Flowers begin to pop up around the trees, purple, yellow, white crocuses around the foot of the trees. Birds begin to chirp and sing. The king is drawing near. Winter is fading and spring is dawning. 
And that's how it is with Christ. Friends, Christ has come. Christ even now is with His people. Christ warms our hearts. Christ turns cold, hard hearts through His love into warm, receptive hearts. His light, His hope dawns in our hearts even now. We're now warm to the things of God, where before we were cold to the things of God. And as we look to Him in faith, He gives us more light and more warmth and more hope. The King has come. And He's coming again. And He's promised glorious things to His people when He comes. Perfect justice. Vanquishing death. And that we will be in His presence. And like a good shepherd, He will care for us. Let's give Him thanks for that and pray. Lord, we do give You thanks uh, for Your promises that You make to Your people about the future. And we do ask that by Your grace You would give us strength to hold on to those promises, especially during seasons of setback, disappointment, and pain. We thank You that even now You come to us, Lord Christ, through Your Word, through the fellowship of believers and at the table where we're reminded of your sacrificial love. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would increase our faith in these things and give us hope and joy in Christ's name and for his glory. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.